The great sage of evangelicalism, J.I. Packer, once made the following comment. He said, no need in Christendom is more urgent than the need for a renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. And in few places is that statement more relevant than when we turn to the areas of our life where we need or we desire to change. Because there is this temptation that we have to believe that the Christian life is pretty much about just getting your marching orders from God, your marching orders on where you need to improve each and every week. It's almost like we think, you know, God does the big stuff, God does the big change, like the conversion thing, that's what God does, and that's what we learned about last week, saving grace. We are saved by grace. He rescues us from the wages of sin. It's glorious news. But there's a sense where we live each and every week believing in our heart, even though we don't declare it, that the responsibility after that big conversion event kind of subtly slides over to us. You know, God is there for the, for the big transformation of getting us into heaven, but then he kind of steps off the stage, exits stage left, he taps out, and we're the only ones left on the stage so that any change, any transformation, any area where we need to grow is up to our effort and our action and our labor and our duty. And it is into that mindset that Paul, in this passage, introduces a stunning concept that moves us towards a, as Packer called it, renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. In fact, let's just begin by reading in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Let's just stop there for a second and recognize that the grace of God being talked about here is first and primarily Jesus Christ. It's not some nebulous, vague force that is kind of permeates the world like a, like a Star Wars episode. It is the person of Jesus Christ, he who lived the perfect life, he who died the substitutionary death, he who rose triumphant from the grave on the third day. His appearance is the grace of God embodied. His appearance was the mission that God came on for our rescue. But this passage doesn't end there because we learn something else and something more about grace as well. He says, verse 11, grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, teaching us. In other words, there's a sense that that this grace that brings salvation seems to have another purpose, that this grace that brings salvation is also a grace that trains us. So even as we're right out of the gate in this passage, all of a sudden Titus 2 is introducing this staggering thought, this staggering truth, that the grace of God didn't just appear, the grace of God remained. Grace of God is not passive, it's active. The grace of God doesn't end at conversion, it 
hangs around for the day after the sinner's prayer and stays with us for the rest of our life. Now, while I like to think that I'm way too masculine to enjoy Jane Austen, I do have a wife, I have two daughters, I still have a teenage daughter, and one of the things one must learn about Jane Austen movies or books is that they have a certain kind of, shall I say it, predictability. In fact, they go like this, meet the unmarried woman, meet the anxious unmarried woman. Meet the dumb man. Meet the dumb man who doesn't know that he needs an anxious woman or an anxious unmarried woman to be happy. And then you throw in a ball and a mansion and a soggy, soggy English countryside, and boom, you have a Jane Austen book. <laughs> and have you ever noticed that Jane Austen books, movies, they always end in the same way? How do they end? There's a wedding. There's a wedding. That's how it ends. You know, there's never a a part two, Sense and Sensibility, the sequel. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice, Darcy Strikes Back. You you never see that. (laughs) Because in the Jane Austen world, love is about getting to the altar. See, a lot of Christians think the same way about grace, that, that God's grace is basically available to get us to the altar, to get us in a relationship with Him, to marry us off to God, but then the day after it's gone, it fades, and we're there to fight. Grace fades, we fight. In other words, the change in life is basically about us. And what's happening here in Titus chapter 2 is it's offering us this glorious news, and that is that there is this astounding sequel for grace, for grace for change. That conversion is not the end of grace, it's actually the beginning of grace. And so what Paul was doing here is he's offering a kind of mind-jolting thought for this process of change by letting us know that, yes, the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, but the grace of God remains as well. That because God loves us, because Jesus died for us, God provides in our life, in your life, a kind of stubborn grace. And it is a stubborn grace to help you run the race. Stubborn grace to run the race. That's the whole message right there. Stubborn grace to run the race. That's what sanctifying grace really is. Now, what I want to do together is I want to talk specifically about what God accomplishes through the sanctifying grace according to Titus chapter 2. And I've just got two simple points of what God accomplishes according to Titus 2. Here's number one. God reveals the enemy by grace. God reveals the enemy by grace. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought or wondered about how you even become aware of the areas that you need to change? How did you even perceive or comprehend that there was some area of your life that wasn't where God wanted it to be? 
Well, let's hold that question and go back to verse, verse 12. Well, verse 11, grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people, verse 12, training us for this purpose, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Stop right there for a second. So, ungodliness and worldly passions are kind of the target of this training program, of God's training program. Worldliness, ungodliness and worldly passions are, are what's in the crosshair of grace in this training program. And so, grace comes and grace acts upon our soul. Grace throws a flame upon the soul in such a way that ungodliness and worldly passions begin to emerge, begin to rise, begin to surface, so that we become conscious of them all because of grace. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. My dad was a steel worker in Homestead, Pennsylvania for 27 years. He made stainless steel. In the process of making stainless steel, they take steel, they melt it down, and they heat it to the point where the impurities that are already there in the steel begin to rise to the surface, and then they scoop it off, and they heat it more, and it rises to the surface. They continue to heat the steel until all the impurities that they can find rise to the surface. That's a great picture of grace. Grace is always throwing heat upon the soul to surface the impurities so that we might perceive what God already knows. And grace trains us because grace begins to expose to us the real problem. Begins to expose to us what's really there within us. What is in that active heart that we have? What is the real point of attack for our attention? See, without grace, we wouldn't know. Without grace, we would see nothing. Without grace, we would be morally blind. We would live our entire life addressing the wrong things, running in the wrong directions, giving attention in ways that wasn't moving uh, us forward. I, I, I was at a preaching class once where there was a guy, a, a kind of dentist-turned-preacher. So he's a pastor, he's a preacher, but he used to be a dentist. And he told this story to the class about how one day he had this elderly lady in his chair and she had this horrible cavity. And so he took an x-ray, but he must have put the x-ray up on the screen, flipped around in the wrong way, and he ended up drilling the wrong tooth. I know, isn't that frightening? And he was just talking about how he, how he did an exceptional job of of filling her with Novocaine and doing the drilling and the filling all while engaging the patient in warm, dentist-like conversation. And you know the routine. Open your mouth and put in all the instruments and then begin a conversation with the patient. <laughs> it's only one small problem. He drilled the wrong tooth. You know, in our desire to relieve pain, it's really easy to drill the wrong tooth. 
It's really easy to begin to drill in the wrong direction, to begin to drill in the past, as if the past is the biggest source of our problems, to begin to drill into the circumstances, as if our circumstances is what is really at the root of all that's going wrong in our life, to drill into the times that we were hurt or the way that our parents loved us or didn't love us. All of those things are highly significant for each and every individual But they're not the fundamental cause of why we are wired to sin. And the good news is that this this grace comes in and reveals to us the right tooth. This grace comes in and reveals to us the place that he wants to drill. And, and, And God comes to us in his grace by helping us to find what we would never find on our own, which is that there is an enemy within our soul. It's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 7 where Paul was talking, I believe, as a believer, and he begins to describe his soul in a way that every person in this room can identify with. He says this, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. In other words, Paul is saying, I have, this, I have this turf war going on inside of me. I have these genuine desires. I want to do good, but there's another force within me that's always waging war against that, that's always trying to steal the momentum from that, and it lies close at hand. Well, the, well, the encouragement that comes to us out of Titus 2 is that grace first leads us to Using the words of Paul, find that law at work. In ourselves, by the way. (laughs) Isn't it easy to find it in other people? No problem finding that law at work in your spouse, is there? No problem whatsoever to find the law at work within your children, or your boss, or your co-workers. But that's not what sanctifying grace does. Sanctifying grace says, I'm here to help you find the law at work within you. Because no one, no one discovers sin on their own. You think Satan wants you to understand your sin? Do you think your flesh operates in such a way that it's anxious for you to see this evil that lies within? No. There is a powerful grace that is pulsating through your soul that is at work to reveal and then to rescue us from the clutches of this sin. And I'm so grateful for that, aren't you? Because we're all Christians under construction. We're all works in progress. I I have this area in my life this area of fear that dogs me each and every week. It, it creeps up on me unexpectedly. It grabs me at vulnerable moments. It introduces itself in times when it's completely unexpected. There are times that I'm aware that it's standing over here. There are times where it's just out of my eyesight. There are times where it's in my peripheral vision. And there are times 
when it's right there in front of my face. Now, what grace does for me is grace arrives to me and tells me to lift that cold stone of fear and peer beneath it to see what lives beneath it. And as I look beneath my fear, I see this lack of trust in God. I see this fundamental unbelief, this craving for control that I want in this situation. And I move from being a victim who just has fears to looking beneath the fears, to what drives the fears, to what's underneath the fears. And I see this rebellious unbelief that does not trust God, does not have confidence in God, doesn't trust the promises of God, wants to control in the place of God, wants to be omnipotent instead of God. And as I look at it, and as I then peer to the gospel, I feel my inner victim dying. You know, that part of our heart, because that evil that lies within, what is seeking to convince us each and every day is you're a victim. You're a victim of other people's sin. You live perpetually sinned against. That's your biggest problem. That's what this law is seeking to convince us of. And yet, as the grace of God comes into my life, it reminds me that I have a, I'm a sinner, but it also reminds me that I'm loved. It also reminds me that I have a Savior. If I'm a victim, I don't need a Savior. But if I'm a sinner, I have a Savior. There's a resolution. It takes me beyond simply being sinned against to being a sinner and frees me and rescues me out of that sin. Listen, the next time you become convicted of an idol, the next time you have some perspective or some perception to some kind of sinful craving in your heart, the next time you feel aware of a sin, start with this thought, oh my goodness, there is a stubborn grace at work in my soul that is helping me to see that. It's stubborn grace to run the race. So that's point number one, that grace reveals to us the enemy. And point number two is that God trains us to fight patiently by grace. God trains us to fight patiently by grace. Now, let's look at verse 12 again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Actually, let's, let's back up. Let's just look at that word training. We're just going to, we're walking through this passage point by point. So, so the grace of God has not just appeared, but the grace of God trains. In other words, the grace of God comes to us with a kind of job description. And, and the brief of that job description is this, grace trains. Grace trains. New International Version says grace teaches. NAS says grace instructs. The Greek word there is, is much more than just kind of a knowledge download from, from one thing to the next or from one person to the next. It's actually a term that is used in parenting that invokes this idea of a father giving directions, giving instruction, correcting, discipling, training. Not somebody who's just just there for a little while and then backing out. Grace is not a substitute teacher, you know. I mean, praise God for substitute teachers. You remember growing up in school, your, your teacher would call in sick, and then you'd walk in the morning, it's like this foreign face is there, 
this person that you've never seen or met, and they're there, they're just for the day. You know, this substitute, this, this person who is so desperate for experience or for income that they'll go back to the asylum and watch over the kids and the, the lunatics that are in the classroom. And all the lunatics in the classroom recognize that they're a substitute, and so it's game on all day. And this hero that leads the class for that one temporary period goes home utterly shattered by the experience, a day in the life of a substitute. It's temporary. Grace is not temporary. Grace is the permanent teacher who is always present 24-7 of each and every day. In his commentary on Titus, Don Guthrie says, quote, Grace is here almost personified in its task of, and I love this, educating us in the art of living. Isn't that great? The grace of God educates us in the art of living. In other words, the grace of God, verse 11, didn't just appear. The grace of God arrives, has a whistle in its mouth, and has a clipboard, and is ready to coach us is ready to train us, is ready to keep us moving forward. And here's the thing that's so cool. Grace meets us right where we are with the goal of taking us to where God wants us to be. So grace meets us right where we are, but has this goal to take us to where God wants us and has called us to be. And grace does this by opening up our ears to the Lord, opening up our eyes to see Jesus, to see Him through His Word. Grace opens ears and eyes that grace might train us. You you, you may recall Ann Sullivan. Ann Sullivan was the teacher, and she was called teacher, of Helen Keller. So Ann Sullivan, when Helen Keller was five or six years old, Ann Sullivan, the teacher, arrives on the doorstep, if you don't know the story, of the Keller family, and begins to train this six-year-old young girl who is blind, deaf, and cannot speak. Helen Keller. Prior to this, Helen Keller then later in life described herself at that period basically as a, a savage beast. She would just wildly clamor throughout the home in in darkness and in silence, not knowing what life was even about. She just had all of these reckless impulses that would move her from room to room. She would sleep where she wanted to. She would eat when she wanted to and had no governing ideas about who she was or what life was all about. And then Ann Sullivan, the teacher, arrived. And Ann Sullivan began to patiently and personally train Helen Keller. And she helped Helen Keller to overcome her stubborn opposition to being trained. And then this incredible handicap that she had so that 58 years later, Well, no, I guess it was less than that. It was about 40 years later. 
Ann Sullivan was having her 65th birthday, and Helen Keller was asked to give a toast. Helen Keller holds up a glass of champagne, and she toasts Ann Sullivan this way. She says, I cannot begin to count over all she has done, and then listen to this, to give me eyes and ears within my limitations. Think about that. Eyes and ears within my limitations. What a great description of sanctifying grace. We are in a fallen world. We have fallen bodies. We have limitations. The grace of God breaks into our life and gives us eyes and ears within those limitations. Its objective, as Guthrie said, is to educate us in the art of living, or as Paul says, to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Or, as we said earlier, it is a stubborn grace to help us run the race. So let's ask some logical questions about this. You know, how how does sanctifying grace work in life? How does it work in marriage? How does it work at my job? Well, what I want to do is I just want to march right through verse 12 and 13 with you, beginning with the, the, the first thing that's said in verse 12, grace gives us the power to renounce the old. Renounce the old. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So first, grace puts us in touch with ungodliness and worldly passions. And then, and this is what's really amazing, grace empowers us to renounce them. Grace empowers us to deny sin its satisfaction in our life. And this gets really very practical. You you have a friend who speaks angry words to you. You have a spouse who's been cold to you all week. You've got a kid who you know, is coming through the kitchen and knocks over the laundry basket that you spent an hour folding the laundry on. Or you've got a boss who, who takes the credit for something you've been working on for three months. And you feel these things rising up with inside of you, these, these passions that are stirring, these phrases that are forming on your lips where you just want to take them out. But what happens in the middle of that? is that grace appears. And grace appears with the power to help us suffocate that sin by not indulging that sin. It helps us to renounce that sin. It exhorts us and empowers us to strangle, to mortify, to kill, to crucify, to go to war on sin Grace kind of arrives as a, as a weapons expert, and it's ready to help us in how to go to war against sin. So there's this attack mode and this renunciation mode that grace gives us the power to engage in. But that's just the first part. So grace gives us the power to renounce the old. And then, second point, second sub-point is grace gives us the power to live. And let's just Keep reading through the passage, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a certain way, to live 
self-controlled, to live upright and godly lives in this present age. So grace comes. Grace doesn't just say, don't do that. You can't do that. Great grace is different than the law. That's what the law says. But grace works on a different operating system. Grace tells us to put certain things on. Grace tells us to come alive. The Puritans used the word vivify, bring to life or come to life. So grace becomes, on this side of the passage, a coach. And grace tutors us to make an exchange, to make a swap, to to swap out our love for that idol with a superior affection for Jesus Christ. Grace coaches us to replace the world with, with God. Grace coaches us to swap the eternal for the temporal, to put off the flesh and to put on, you know, charitable thoughts. So going back to the illustrations I was using earlier, to take the friend who spoke angry words to you and to exchange the angry words that you want to speak back with self-control because it teaches us and trains us to live self-control. Grace works constantly each and every day to... One of the most powerful things that grace does is it it reaches into our narrative. The narrative that we're always telling ourselves that we're basically here on earth and we are the... We are the object of other people's initiative. We are always being affected by other people and we, we have this narrative, whether it's in marriage or in parenting, where we are the victim. And, and it causes us to respond in certain ways because always closely behind any ways we feel sinned against is the sin of self-pity. And the sin of self-pity is the equivalent of just getting on a merry-go-round and going round and round and round for days and never making any progress, never making any forward momentum. And so the grace of God comes in and helps us to swap that out with, with this idea that there's a path forward, but we have to accept responsibility for what we, can, what we can control, which is ourselves, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes. And so grace brings power for us to live in the way that God has called us to live. So, so grace gives us the power to renounce, verse 12. Grace gives us the power to live. Here's the third one. Grace gives us the power to see because this this passage starts with Jesus. Verse 11, he's appeared bringing salvation. This passage finishes with Jesus. In verse 13, we're waiting for this blessed hope, the another appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that means the change that we're trying to do in our life and that we're praying for. Change is never just about what we do. It's never just about this tick list of things, that steps we need to take. It, it's part of it is what we see, what we behold. Do we see Jesus? Do we look to the Savior? Are we seeing the Savior as the center of our change? Are we putting what He's accomplished for us on the cross through His death and resurrection at the center of what's going to empower us to be able to change? 
Because there's a lot of Christians that live life just basically orbiting around verse 12 here. It's, you know, training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So their vision of change and their counsel for change is to step into a situation and just say, oh, you've got to renounce, you've got to live. You've got to vivify, you've got to mortify. You've got to come alive, you've got to put to death. But in this passage, we basically have that whole message of, of, of putting to death, of renouncing and living sandwiched by the gospel. We got Jesus' first appearance in verse 11, the second appearance in verse 13, but it's all between Jesus. It's all about starting with the gospel, moving to change, ending with the gospel, but we never stray from the gospel. It is the power for change, it is the reason for change, and it ultimately reveals the Savior who is exalted through our change. So real change can only happen because of grace, the grace that appears, the grace that remains. So God gives us the power to renounce, the power to to live, the power to see. Last one, the power to wait, to wait. Because Titus 2 offers this odd, strange, unexpected feature in verse 13 where all of a sudden we're waiting for our blessed hope. I mean, verse 12, we're renouncing and living and seeing, and, and, and all this activities go on, and then all of a sudden we slam right into waiting. You know, there's this skirmish, there's fighting, there's renouncing, there's, there's things going on, and then it kind of all skids to a halt, skids to a stop in verse 13, where we're waiting for our blessed hope. And I think part of what's being conveyed here is that this stubborn grace meets us, not up in heaven, not in some ideal world where we're supposed to live, but right here, right now, in a fallen world where we are in this kind of waiting room between the two appearings of Jesus Christ. He has come, He will come, we're stuck in the middle. And we're moving towards that second coming, but right now we live in this fallen world so that our battle with sin, our battle with anger, our battle with laziness or self-control, or, or, or it, it all plays out on a larger stage of, of waiting for change, waiting for the ultimate change in Jesus, but waiting for change in our life, in the life of the person that we're married to, in our kids, the people in our small group. And we're prepared to wait because we know we live in the waiting room between the two appearings. And so grace comes and it trains us to wait of all things because we don't expect this. We think grace is just going to have us kick butt, take names, we're changing, we're moving on. And then we slam right into this theme where it's training us, yes, to aggressively renounce and live, but all while we're waiting patiently for God to move for change to happen, for Jesus to return. And let me be honest with you, this, I think, is the most challenging feature of all the points in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Because for too many of us, we think change should be like, you know, like an icon on the computer screen, like something that you want to upload or an app that you want to put on. You just point, you click, you apply, boom, it's there. You're operating out of it within seconds of, of pulling it up. 
But that's not what life is like between the two appearings in the waiting room. That's not what life is like. Change takes time. And God has arranged it that way. God has arranged the cosmos in such a way that transformation takes time. So the coach, Grace, meets us in the appear, between the two appearings, meets us in the waiting room, and, and settles our soul so that we can wait for God to move. We can wait for God to act. And yet it will stubbornly work in our life so that it will ultimately produce a patience that reflects the goodness and reality of God. Great quote here by Cornelius Plantinga. He said, quote, Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God, and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Because grace is stubborn. Because God's love for us, you, is stubborn. And God wants to meet us right where we are. Not not somewhere where we need to get to so he can meet us. He's not the guy who's saying, well, yeah, you prepare yourself and you pull yourself together in these areas. And if you grow this much, then I'll meet you there. You got to meet these goals and then you and I can connect. But until then, you haven't really shown me that you want to change. That's not where God is. You know, I was watching the Olympics the other night, and I was, I was reminded of the, you know, the Barcelona Olympics, 1992. Remember the story of the, the British guy, the British runner, Derek Redmond? Derek Redmond was running in the 400 meter, and uh, nearing the finish, he snaps a hamstring. Later, he was quoted as saying, I thought someone had shot me. It was that painful, that sudden, and he goes down. He collapses to the ground. And so they're running a stretcher out to put Derek Redmond on the stretcher, and he's waving. He's saying, no. He's lying on the ground. He's saying, I don't, I don't want a stretcher. I, I want to finish. He waves it off because he's determined to finish the race. And, he, and he's struggling to get up, and he can't even walk because he's completely, his, 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 his hamstring is done. It's dead. And he's trying to move forward, and you're watching it on TV. And next thing you know, like out of the right-hand side, you see this, this picture of this guy, this old guy, running around the track. And you think, what is going on here? And it's his father. And his father comes running over to him. And he reaches down, and he helps Derek Redmond to his feet. And then he takes his arm, and he puts it around his shoulder, And then he begins to walk Derek Redman around the rest of the track to and through the finish line. And Derek Redman finished that race. Derek Redman did not finish that race because he was an Olympian. Because he was in top condition, peak performance at this point of his life. Because of all the training he had done over all these years. Derek Redman finished the race because his father came and picked him up and walked him around, not ran, walked him towards the finish line and through the finish line. Listen, I'm confident in a room this size with this many people that there is 
today frustration with where you are, discouragement with where you are, even disillusionment, even some here that were basically last night saying, I don't think I'm going to finish this race. And honestly, I don't understand your race. I don't understand why your hamstring snapped the way that it did through that situation, through that relationship, through that circumstance, why you feel you can't finish the race, why you're dogged by this sin or this weakness or this thing from the past. But Titus 2 reminds us that though we don't have all the answers, we do have all we need. We have a God who, just like Derek Redmond's father, left the stands of heaven and came running towards us as we lay in our sin, unable to move forward. And he lifted us up and he ran us and will continue to run us towards the finish line. He is the God who gives stubborn grace. Not just grace, stubborn grace. A grace that reveals the problem so that we can address the problem. A grace that trains us for godliness. A grace that meets us in the waiting room between the two appearings and gives us the power to wait. (gasps) That's a stubborn grace. A stubborn grace to run the race. Let's pray.